This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. Hi, and welcome to Think About It, or welcome back to Think About It. This is Uli Bear, your host. And first of all, I want to say that I'm with everyone who's out there in the coronavirus crisis, which is hopefully everyone who's self isolating and taking care of themselves. My heart especially goes out to those who have to work in this time of crisis or who've been affected already, to those who've already lost somebody to this pandemic or who have somebody who is sick right now. I'm sending you support and I'm recording this podcast to perhaps provide some kind of guidance as meek as that can be in this kind of crisis of how to make sense of what is happening. Today's episode is on Albert Camus' 1947 novel, The Plague, which most of you have probably heard about from just about every pundit in the world, from Argentina to Japan, from New Zealand to Israel, and from Paris to New York. It's the book that many people refer to, and it's a fictional account of an epidemic that strikes a town in Algeria where Camus was born as the son of a cleaning lady who went to regular schools but then made it into the upper echelons of Parisian and world society when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, ultimately. I spoke about Albert Camus' novel, The Plague, to Caroline Weber, a professor at Barnard College of French Literature and Civilization, who is also an expert on Proust and has been on this podcast before to talk about Proust. Caroline and I were really interested, why would someone read the story of a pandemic or epidemic in a time of crisis? And what can literature do to let us understand the ways in which we can make sense of what it means to live through a historical catastrophe. Camus lays out some responses to the pandemic through various characters and also lets us understand why bearing witness to the suffering of those around us and to create a memorial to what he calls the injustice and outrage done 
them by the epidemic is something we can learn and ultimately that we can take small actions in addition to those people who are fighting valiantly and heroically really to defeat this disease to add something to the world in which we are right now finding ourselves. Thank you for listening to this episode on Albert Camus' novel, The Plague. I also want to add that Think About It is now available on the Lyceum platform, which is a platform of curated podcasts that have academic and intellectual, artistic and educational content, things that are both entertaining and instructive, that make you think, make you learn, and make you appreciate the world in which we live. It's free, I don't get paid for it, but it allows other people to find the podcast. It's Lyceum, and you should look it up. Thanks so much. Hi, Uli. Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Okay, I'm very good. So uh, you are in uh, self-quarantine right now? I'm in self-quarantine, but I'm feeling, I was telling um, my stepdaughter, uh, I guess she's my stepdaughter, yeah, um, who's a doctor in Philly who's 30, and she um, she tested she was the first person in her hospital to test positive for COVID like oh two God. weeks ago. And she's just she's leaving self-quarantine this week. And it sounds like my version of it is whatever I have is definitely less bad than whatever she had, and she's feeling fine now. So yeah, it doesn't feel worse than like a normal flu. So she got through it in two weeks. She got through it in two weeks. I think she started feeling a lot better after like a week, but the, the quarantine is two weeks. How are you sure. feeling? I'm fine and I'm staying indoors. So it's just been, it's, um, so I'm just going to try to stay inside as much as I can. And um, so, yeah, you know, I'm hoping, I mean, it's really hard on a lot of people. So I just feel, I hope people get through this, right? And yeah. stay healthy and stay away from other people. That's the I know. thing we can do. If you can't do it, like other people have to go to work, like your stepdaughter, right? The hard yeah. On the yeah. Front line of this. So, I, um, I mean, we've been reading <laughs> about Camus' The Plague, which is the book that everyone seems to be referring to. And it puts you in a really particular mindset, doesn't it, right yeah. now? Yeah. It's an, I'd forgotten. I think the last time I read this book was when you and I read it in a seminar in grad school. And uh, I'd forgotten what an intense experience it is to read this this text. Right, right. And it's, it's somewhere, um, so we read it as, uh, it's written in 1947, a long time ago, and until just about four weeks ago, it was considered for a really long time an allegory of the German occupation of France, of living under an oppressive regime, and of trying to find a way to resist evil in the world. Yeah. And, and, and now, Kevin supported that, um, you know, he wrote this letter to Roland Barthes that uh, basically complaining about people's refusal to see it as an allegory of World War II. So contrary to that op-ed by Alain de Botton recently, I think that is, it's, you know, it's certainly a fair way of reading it on one level. But Camus said in that same letter that the book could be read on more levels than just, of course, as, a, as the resistance to Nazism. Right. And he has this quote from Daniel Defoe in the beginning as a preface that said, uh, one thing can shape another, basically, where he read uh, Defoe's plague journal, which was 200 years before that, from 1722. Um, and this book, so when we read it as a novel, it's a really complicated um, and at the same time, very simple narrative. It's a town yeah. where the plague hits and it says in the beginning, I'll just start you out because I'd love to hear sort of how you made sense of it this time being as, uh, you know, 
avid reader of French literature and someone who knows French culture and philosophy and history. And in quite the beginning of the book, um, it's a quote that everybody has been, has on their mind right now that says, everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down our heads from a blue sky. Yeah. This seems to be what in some complicated ways has happened to the world right now during COVID-19, during the coronavirus crisis, right? Yeah, it's exactly right. And I think, you know, you and I were talking before uh, the call started recording about about how, you know, I was joking that, it, you know, at least we're not all going around with these giant pustules and at least, you know, we didn't, this didn't start out with rats dying in the street. Um, but I think there is a way in which uh, the the way that Camus describes this North African city of Alhan, uh, which is a real city, um, being infected by a plague in, in the year 1940 blank. So he kind of gives an historical marker, but not, there wasn't really a plague in all uh, in the 1940s. Um, it does have, a, it feels a lot like current events, this feeling that this couldn't be happening to us now and the sort of levels of denial at the beginning for the people in the city of Oran, uh, kind of for the, in the early days and weeks of the plague, telling themselves that sooner or later their lives will just go back to normal. Uh, still clinging to their personal preoccupations, as Camus says several times. And I think you and I saw that, you know, in among people we knew. And frankly, I, you know, I was doing that myself in the early days of the plague, like here, today, COVID-19, what am I going to do with my dogs? What, you know, should I stay in New York or should I go to the country? Um, and this idea that somehow I was alone and free in making decisions about ha how to handle something in the face of which none of us is alone and none of us is free, is um, is a really is a really interesting um, existential problem to to grapple with. I think it's interesting you say right there. The beginning of the book, there's there's the characters he introduces, so the doctor who becomes the who eventually we learn is the one who writes the chronicle about his own role in this um, epidemic. He's alone and free, and then he sees a few rats here and there, and there are more rats dying, and people get a bit annoyed, and then they get a bit freaked out, as one would when there are rats dying everywhere. And then the city decides to scoop up all the dead rats every morning, put them in trucks, and incinerate them, which turns out to be a really bad idea because it spreads <laughs> the virus even more. Yeah. And, and this mixture of being free, making decisions under conditions that at this point for all of us and for the people in this book are genuinely free condition before the plague has really reached the town entirely. There's a few deaths occasionally, someone is affected, but we're not affected. So this, yeah. and what you said when, so Camus starts out writing this book in a state of, one would think this is what it means to be free, right? Not to be threatened by death all the time. Yeah. And, and yet, yeah, and yet, uh, little by little, the doctor who is well-placed to be at the center of the plague because he's still trying to do his job every day and care for the sick, he starts to realize, and the people around him start to realize with varying degrees of speed and ease or slowness and difficulty that, that in fact, none of them is free and that they're all caught in the plague. They're all, as they say a few times, in the plague um, because it's a condition from which one can't be free. And it is quite interesting that he sort of says the plague. And I think this is one of the things that I wanted to ask you about what the, what the book ultimately does for us. What does it give us? I mean, first of all, we should talk about reading it. The experience of reading it, to me, it really felt like you are 
not just looking over your shoulder, but you just feel there for stretches, you feel entirely paranoid and worried about anything and anybody. And there's this kind of sense of oppression in a narrative that nonetheless proceeds pretty well. There are the rats and there are some people who die. The doctor goes to the hospital. He argues with the authorities. They're trying to decide what to do, which is exactly what happened in the last 10 weeks in any country in the world. Yeah. A, A few cases... And then the the experience of reading it at the same time, it, I felt it allowed me to actually take stock of my own responses in a different yeah. setting. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think that's kind of what I was getting at when I was talking about my my own unimportant little scurrying around and responses at when the news started, you know, coming out that uh, suddenly, you know, COVID. We'd heard that it was in China. We'd heard that it was in Italy. Then all of a sudden it's in Washington state and it's in California and it's in New York. And the kind of, it was very, very interesting to read a master like Camus. I mean, he's such a beautiful writer, although I'd like, I'd like to talk about, you know, beauty and writing later on too. And the problem of, you know, how do you write or how do you, if you even try to create art in the face of disaster, but he's such a beautiful writer that, yeah, I really, I felt like, watching all of these characters scramble to make their own petty decisions. Should I try to sneak out of town? One character is trying to decide even when the town is, the town has officially been shut down and quarantined. Well, there's a woman I love in Paris. Shouldn't I try to sneak out? You know, somebody else who's trying to help out during the day is still trying to write a novel at night and never getting right. farther than the first sentence. Like everyone has their sort of little, um, personal preoccupations again, is a, is a phrase that Camus uses constantly throughout this book to describe just, you know, individual lives and the things that motivate people. And uh, I think it it is very interesting to read this book at a time when one's own individual life, one's own individual decisions and concerns are suddenly superseded by something that's much bigger than all of us. And right now, you know, I'm self-quarantined, so it doesn't, I've got a fever and it, it doesn't matter that I would really like to go outside. I would love to go to the store and get some pesto, um, and I can't go anymore. My personal preoccupation is doesn't count. As, as Camus says in a quote that um, you and I emailed about, the plague isn't um, isn't made to the measure of man. It's something that's bigger than us. Right. And right. so all of a sudden, what we care about is very petty and small, and in fact can't register on the scale of um, of this of the scourge, as he also frequently calls it. And what's interesting, what you're saying, sort of everybody is concerned with their own affairs and keeps on also wanting to hang on to a daily routine. In this quote you just referred to, the sentence before, he calls all of us humanists. And he doesn't disparage or demean that. He says, in this respect, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. In other words, they were humanists. They disbelieved in pestilences. They couldn't believe that the world in which they lived could end like that and that their lives were meaningless. So while he says people were sort of preoccupied with their daily routines, he never dismisses it. And the book, I think, is very moving because it has this philosophical ambition to explain what is the human condition. But it also says there's nothing to be sort of super, sort of arrogantly dismiss people's craving for proximity, for closeness, to be to the, in the movie theaters, go to the cafes, have your daily affairs in order. That is not something Camus ever steps over and says, they're bigger ideas. This is a historical catastrophe and we all have to step back. Yeah. 
so this, this care for the individual and for individual lives really remains throughout the whole book. No, that's such a that, that's such a uh, a subtle and um, an insightful point, Willie. And I think it is one of the things that makes reading this book the experience of it. Yes, you know, one does feel sort of paranoid and claustrophobic and trapped in this town with all of these these um, these citizens. Um, the narrator, at least in the French version, he before we only find out in the very very last pages of the book that this Dr. Bernard Rieu uh, is the narrator and otherwise we just have this kind of anonymous voice narrating everything in the third person frequently saying our citizens felt this our citizens did that and I think that um, one of the beautiful things about this book as you uh, as you underline there in that comment is that the narrator never takes a sort of a position of moral superiority relative to his fellow citizens part of being in the plague with everyone is actually paradoxically uh, having a greater compassion for how everyone is suffering in seeing their their small lives get sort of swept away by this big catastrophe. He says, I think somewhere in that same section that you just quoted from, which is very early in the book, in my French edition, it's around page 42, and I think my book begins on page 11 or something. Um, he says, you know, we are all exiled. We're, we're yeah. cut off from the things that we care about. We're cut off by circumstance. But as you say, that doesn't, in the eyes of the narrator, make him and his fellow citizens ridiculous or morally flawed. It just makes them human. You know, they believe in humankind. They believe in humanity and its importance. So they have to believe in the importance of their own human concerns. And it's interesting. He gives us a couple of characters. The one you already mentioned is the there's a journalist who's stranded in the city, Rambert. He's not from the city, and he just gets trapped there basically. And then he wants to escape, and he gets some smugglers to maybe get him out because he has a girlfriend or a fiance in Paris. He thinks about her a lot, and his name is Rambert. And Rieu completely understands and says, "Yeah, you should leave. It's more yeah. important to be with the one you love. Don't become, don't do anything heroic here. Don't try to do anything. And he's just a journalist. And then there's Taru, his neighbor, who yeah. initially is very quite, maybe not so engaged, and then slowly develops kind of a neighbor brigade, sort of starts to help out and becomes really active. And Rieu, yeah. or and Camille gives us these characters. Rieu is a doctor who wants to be the clinical observer, but also help. Taru yeah. is someone who just starts a neighborhood help Rambert is an outsider, really an outsider, who doesn't have any business there, but decides to stick with the people who he's sort of slowly bonding with. And I think he, Camus gives us these options of how to behave without saying one is better than the other. That's right. No, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, um, the, and I think one of the challenges of reading anything that's labeled as, you know, existentialist literature as Camus' writings and those of his uh, friend turned enemy uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. One of the challenges, this kind of constant vacillation between, am I reading a literary text in all of its, you know, diversity and and subtlety and often strangeness and internal contradictions, or am I reading a statement of some kind of philosophy? And so there are statements that the narrator makes that sound like kind of philosophical maxims or generalizations, but when the narrator offers these kinds of maxims, they're usually maxims that prevent us from reaching some sort of generalizable conclusion. So one of them is the plague suppresses all value judgments. And, you know, all of a sudden, you know, if, if there's one, another of the characters in the sort of 
group that the constellation of characters who sort of orbit around Rieu, the central character and narrator, is this figure Cotard, who we right. found out at the beginning of the book has tried to commit suicide because he's been in trouble with the police and he knows that he's going to be put on trial and and have to go to jail and maybe even um, be um, capitally punished, you know, be executed. And Cotard is somebody who actually sort of cheers up when the plague happens because all of a sudden the authorities don't have any time to be chasing him around and worrying about whatever his crimes were before the quarantine, before the lockdown. And so, uh, and even he though, uh, is not someone who uh, Dr. Rieu sort of identifies as the valid target of a, of a negative moral judgment. You know, all kinds of moral judgments of somebody's good, somebody's not good, somebody's a hero, somebody's not. Um, all of those are suspended during the plague. And I think Camus does a really good job through his narrator of of illustrating that. In that scene that you talked about where Rambert, the journalist, is telling Rieu, the doctor, that he wants to leave town, even though it's now illegal to get out, um, Rieu, as you say, says, yeah, you know, I who am I to judge? But he sort of repeatedly says, yeah, who knows what's right? What he doesn't say, Rieu, is that he himself has a wife who's trapped outside of the city who's being treated for tuberculosis in a hospital somewhere else. And that would be the moment when Rieu, if he were interested in, in sort of establishing moral superiority or passing judgment, would have told Rambert, by the way, I'm staying and I too have a woman I love outside of town. And he declines to do that. So I think Camus creates a character in this sort of dominant perspective on the plague, the doctor who is our eyes and ears throughout the experience of, of the plague in this city, which lasts for about what, like 10 months? Uh, right. He creates a character who resolutely and consistently refuses to pass uh, judgment. He says frequently, I've, been, I've tried to be an objective witness. I've tried to be an, a witness with goodwill towards the people I'm commenting on. And you sort of see that goodwill. And it, it, it does make for a kind of a thread of, of hope or decency or... Um, uh, kind of positive value, even in the, the horror that is this, this catastrophe, this, this pestilence. I, I want to ask you two things. First, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, as you said, was a friend and colleague of Camus, and so was Simone de Beauvoir and other people, and they broke with Camus pretty severely, which was greatly upsetting to Camus, who won the Nobel Prize and was celebrated, but really cast out by the philosophical elite of France, yeah. where he had arrived as, he was very poor, he was from Algiers and he had not gone to the elite schools and he came to Paris and was initially welcomed in and and what they objected to. And I, I want to talk about that for a moment because it's quite interesting. And then the one person who the doctor doesn't really let off so easy is the priest, Panelou. Yeah. He kind of, he has really a problem with the religious effort, but why I want to look at, at Sartre and these people dismissing Camus, because they're doing what the book is supposed to do for us today. They actually want Camus to give us an answer, to say this is the extreme difficult condition of humanity, the plague is a metaphor, a reality for it, and under these conditions we have to make decisions and behave in certain ways according to certain stated principles. That's correct. Simone de Beauvoir said to Camus, she criticized the book because she said, you shouldn't have presented the plague as a natural phenomenon because everything is historical and political and everything right. is constructed, which is a way of saying the COVID-19 crisis is not really just a, a virus, but it is really political failures. 
yeah. it's a political crisis. So they, the Beauvoir, Sartre, they want to do what everybody has turned this book into a lesson. The plague gives us this extreme condition and we can now have some moral guide on what to do. And Camus doesn't do that for them. Yeah. Yeah, no, he, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, and it's, it's quite interesting because in some ways he doesn't do it, but at the same time he charts another path. He doesn't give us the Sartre de Beauvoir kind of existentialist ethos of you are condemned to your freedom, so you have to make decisions based on that freedom. But he wants to find, put, as you said, Rieu, the doctor, into a position he's not judging, but he also is not passive. Right. Yeah, no, and I think I think that's a good way. That's actually a really good way to talk about, I think, Camus relative to Sartre and Beauvoir. I think one of the things that the existentialists, um, you know, so the sort of school of, you know, intellectuals and philosophers really in, you know, embodied by and led by Jean-Paul Sartre, who was about eight years older than Camus and had gone to, the, gone to those elite schools in Paris that... Um, that Camus didn't attend as a, as a poor boy from uh, North Africa, um, they, wanted to, they wanted to comment, they wanted to judge. They wanted to establish themselves as the sort of um, arbiters of right and wrong. And in the wake of the German occupation, Sartre, like Camus, had been involved in the resistance. And you know, many of the people in the existentialist circle had to varying degrees been involved in the resistance against the German occupation. So there was this sort of emergence from uh, the occupation after, after, the, after the Allies won the war in the late 40s and the 1950s that somehow the, you know, the existentialists, this group around Sartre, it behooved them to be the moral standard bearers for France and the, the standard bearers for a certain kind of politics that wouldn't allow something like the Nazi occupation to happen again. I think one of the things where Camus is actually ahead of his time in in um, in not following along with the sort of Sartrean and de Beauvoirian uh, line of party line was that uh, unlike them, he was really troubled beginning in the late 40s and the early 50s by the abuses of Stalinism in the in the Soviet Union, and to be a good card carrying leftist. Therefore, you know, erstwhile opponent of Nazism and future opponent of totalitarianism, supposedly in all its forms, was in fact to be pro-Soviet Union, uh, pro-Communist Party, and that was the that was the line that that Sartre and Beauvoir uh, really tried to establish. And Camus became very uncomfortable with that, even though he was also early on involved in the French Communist Party because of the fact that he saw that there were death camps under Stalin as well. There was massive oppression under Stalin as well. And so I think what really made uh, Sartre and Beauvoir uh, uncomfortable, um, in addition to whatever I think superior literary talent Camus may have had, at least relative to Sartre, was the fact that he was criticizing something that then, uh, for them, it was urgent not to criticize the Soviet Union and not to criticize communism because those were supposed to be the bulwarks against fascism, against right, right. wing totalitarianism. And so the fact that this book came out in 1947 and that the break between Camus, the sort of definitive break between him and the existentialists came in the early 1950s, really is in many ways historically determined by this fight over, are we pro-Marxist or are we anti-Marxist? 
and and Sartre always um, defended this and said um, he is silent on the Soviet crimes because there's a greater ideal at stake. And then yeah. Camus said, "I never fight for an ideal, but I fight against intolerance and in, and against inhumanity." Which for Sartre wasn't enough of a recipe. He said that doesn't give me enough guidance for how to act. And then Camus said, "Well, life is actually complex, and you have to make choices." basically more on the ground in the circumstances. Like we said, the narrator of the book uh, actually makes these assessments of the characters around him and says, you are helping, this is Taru, Rambert wants to leave, okay. And then this is this is what people have to make their own decisions of what, how to behave in this kind of crisis. And it's very human. And he doesn't dismiss the townspeople around him. He doesn't even really criticize the prefect who's very slow in responding, yeah. who ultimately has suffered this terrible fate of losing his young boy in this really drawn out and they're really incredible scenes of, um, and what you wanted to talk about. Yeah. What does literature do actually with this kind of suffering that for Camus very clearly is utterly senseless. And I think there we see the only real difference to a character is Panlu, the priest who wants to give some kind of larger meaning and says we have to acknowledge suffering in the world because if we don't, we have some doubts about the all-encompassing totality of God. So even a suffering, the suffering of a child is something we have to accept. And Ryo right. does not agree with that at all. Yeah. And that goes back to what you were saying about how Ryo may be kind of open-minded and somewhat neutral as he goes through this experience of the plague with his fellow citizens of Oran and the other people who get trapped there. Um, but it, but he's not entirely passive. Yeah, he does debate the priest um, on more than one occasion. And uh, although in particular, the sort of his, the only moment we really see him uh, losing his temper or almost losing his temper uh, is with the priest um, right after this child has died, this horrific, brutal death. And, um, and he can't agree with the idea that somehow uh, God wanted this suffering, that God willed it, and therefore we as Christians have to just accept it. Otherwise, we have to throw out everything and not believe in God. And for Panlu, the priest, that's not an option. So, um, But you're right, I think, to to bring that up in the context, again, of the way that Camus was different from Sartre and Beauvoir and these other French intellectuals in the 40s and 50s, uh, where uh, he was saying, you know, if Sartre was saying it's not enough of a recipe for you just to say that you're against intolerance, um, it has to be, we have to be able to fight the enemy of uh, right-wing conservative fascism. Um, for Camus, it was not enough to just cling to a recipe like fascists are bad and leftists are good. Uh, and I think that to to tie that into your your question about, you know, what literature can do, I think the thing that this book does so beautifully is what good literature so often does do well, which is it presents a world in all of its human complexity, all of the kind of internal contradictions, all of the sort of differences of perspective that don't necessarily get unified and tied up in a bow into one neat philosophical statement in the end. There are these moments where, you know, Hayu will, will make one generalization that sounds like a good quotable quote if you have like a high school test on existentialism, like, well, the important thing is to do your job or the important right. thing is to work for others. And then later we'll have the same narrator saying, who was I to know what was the right thing to do? 
Maybe, right. yeah. If you, if you love somebody outside the city, maybe just leave. So there's not even within a single character a kind of internal consistency that you would have in a well-articulated, uh, and I would say uh, maybe kind of artificially articulated philosophical worldview. You have people who do, you know, Rambert really, really wants to leave town, the journalist, but he kind of feels like he should stay. And it's not that he suddenly stops loving the woman on the outside, even while he's staying and is joined up with one of these volunteer squads that go around trying to tend to the sick. He's still trying every night illegally to leave town with the help of these Spanish uh, smugglers. So you've got these kind of characters who themselves are masses of contradictions and different desires and impulses and values. And I, I think that uh, the, the beauty of this novel really does reside in that, in this presentation of a microcosm where you see how every single character is more than just the cartoon of, oh, there's the doctor who's good and wants to help people. There's the black marketeer who was a criminal in a previous life and he's bad. There's the priest and he's stupid and ignorant. Even the priest has these moments of real visible doubt and suffering. Um, so to me, that's that also is what makes Camus uh, a superior writer to somebody like Sartre. And I'm, I'm not being fair because we're not talking about some of Sartre's very, very good um, literary works today. But I would say that that's what Camus does so well with so much sensitivity is, is he, he portrays this very textured human world. I want to ask you something about this um the scene of the boy dying, which is really drawn out and really excruciating and very sorrowful and really sad. And there's a sense of, you get that Camus, which is interesting, which is Daniel Defoe 200 years before him, is very compassionate toward the suffering of individuals. Yeah. And yeah. we get these stories which are a bit random. This happens to be someone who's related to somebody else, but otherwise it's, it's he walks through the city, he visits his patients, and then occasionally we get a more personal story of someone's agony and suffering. And what is the purpose, which is Rieu's purpose in writing this chronicle, and then Camus' purpose in putting the suffering in front of us? And I think this is what it's not cathartic, but it allows us to not forget that suffering is never abstract. It's personal, it's individual, and we probably can only get so close to it. Yeah. But, but I'm kind of interested in this, this question of why does Camus actually write a book? Because he could have written an abstract philosophical treatise on how people behave under extreme conditions. There are many such books published after the war, of course, and Camus, as we know, has been read like this. But what is the let's say in a really crass way, what is the benefit for a reader? If people listening to us right now thinking, why in the world would I read a book where someone is describing how a young boy dies of the plague? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I think, I think, I mean, there are many, of course, possible interpretations to, you know, any part of this book, like, you know, there are to any uh, work of literature, but but my strong my strong feeling, my opinion here is that that scene activates our empathy. It activates mm -hmm. our human response. And again, this goes back to what you were saying about how in this early passage that sounds like kind of a philosophical statement about this is what mankind is like with respect to the plague, when a disaster that's bigger than man befalls him, her, them, uh, people just respond uh, with, in, with incredulousness. They can't believe that something like this is happening to them. The plague is not made to the measure of our individual concerns. And so you get this kind of, abstract statement about how our individual concerns don't register on the scale of a of a massive collective disaster 
But then you also get 200 pages later, uh, this incredibly compelling, gruesomely detailed, uh, but cinematic almost scene of this little boy dying where you're pulled into the individual concern of all of the people who are standing around this little boy helplessly trying mm -hmm. to care for him while he's dying. And so you see what we have already kind of been told by the narrator on more than one occasion, which is the plague suspends value judgments. There's nothing necessarily wrong with caring for someone else. There's not, nothing necessarily wrong with having feelings, having an individual response to a tragedy. And I think that that scene really does, it activates our feelings of, of sorrow and pity and horror on behalf of this child. Um, and to me, that's a very valuable thing that, that, that literature can do at its best. You know, that scene really reminded me so much, although it has a different kind of overlay of the scene in Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time, where arguably, uh, one of my friends likes to say that all of, the, basically all of the characters in Marcel Proust's In Search of Lost Time are terrible people. And Proust kind of enjoys portraying people who are really selfish, really petty, really right. dishonest. They lie to each other all the time. They're needlessly cruel to each other at every given opportunity. And there are only two people in this novel of 4,000 pages and several hundred characters who are actually kind of nice people. And those are the narrator's mother and the narrator's grandmother. And the narrator's right. grandmother is the one who dies in a very long, drawn-out, gruesome death scene that to me really echoes so closely. I didn't have time to go back and try to look at it and compare mm -hmm. it to the, the scene of this little boy, uh, Philippe, dying in, in the plague. But um, to me, there was kind of a similar, it has a similar quality of, I'm going to now show you what it's like to see somebody dying. I'm going to put you in the room and I'm going to have you, the reader, see what that's like, see what it looks like, see what it sounds like. The boy utters this inhuman cry, Camus says, that sounds like it was the scream of all man's screams in history. Uh, when the little boy starts screaming, the ward, the other patients in the ward who've largely been quiet until then, one of them starts kind of screaming in time with the little boy. It's this very, very vivid portrayal of a death. And I think that it's meant to carry a really big emotional charge. And that, you know, Conveying that emotional charge is something that uh, that a philosophical tract or uh, a newspaper report, because Camus is also a great journalist throughout the Résistance, and he continued um, his journalistic activities after World War II was over. Uh, literature sort of calls forth those emotions and put us puts us in that place of of pathos and, and compassion uh, in a way that those other um, forms of communication don't do. Yeah, that even, and this is, I think, where the book, when it's being read today, where history and where um, medical science and politics and economics and administrative decisions, none of them are going to really address this other issue that Camus wants to center on. That he said the plague is a, a crisis for us to make meaning of our lives. It's not yeah. just a medical crisis, we're going to get sick. But actually, and he used it as a metaphor for history itself, but say in a crisis, we are losing the way in which we make sense of our relation to our own time. And I think in the scene with the boy, he leaves the reader kind of saying, here are the five men sort of standing around having different responses. What is your response to suffering? And the book, there's a moment when the, when the plague begins, when there's a lockdown, and then the second and third part, it's um, people are s starting to just focus on their day-to-day -day routines, and they're losing 
kind of this idea that there's going to be a future without the plague and they only hold on to these memories, but they're missing something about life. And he says, there's a moment when he says mm-hmm. they're, they drifted through life rather than lived the prey of aimless days and sterile memories, like wandering shadows, because it's so overwhelming. And I think in a strange way, the boy scene yanks them out of that and says, there has to be other things. And the, the other thing is Camus creates this fiction for us. And Rieu creates this chronicle, this testimony to say life cannot just be the present. So in a, in a way, when he comes out of the existentialist climate and sort of his whole philosophy, the absurdist and the, all these ideas that there's something so present oriented. And then Camus says, well, but we live with hope and we yeah. live with memories. We live sort of in between knowledge, hope and memories. And I think this is really... Yeah. Where the book ends up more, so the book doesn't give you a way to behave in the present, but as I say, the present is what we live in and what we have to pay attention to. But to only pay attention to it is is also a risk because it becomes this, like a decisionist idea. We only respond to the contingencies of the day rather than having illusions or um, hopes, etc. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's really, it's, you know, as always, you you... You're such a brilliant reader, and and I well, completely... let me tell you, I'm just like actually, I really, I'm just trying to figure out why we actually take fiction to to remind us of this, which is also what I'm saying is not so insightful. It's just basically that's what human existence is. But it takes something like the plague in Camus to remind us of that, and I think that's why people are turning to the book today, right? Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's right. And again, I just I think that there is something about the the and this gets back to what i was what i was saying about the book just as a as a literary work earlier in our conversation that literature does have a special ability and you know maybe a a special uh, obligation to create a uh, a variegated um and textured and nuanced human world and so mm-hmm suffering of an individual child, if it's rendered in, you know, all of its, you know, multi-sensory horror and sadness and pointlessness that will move us on a level that the abstractions of philosophical discourse just won't move us. In that, the quote that you were talking about before that I love so much, um, you know, and, uh, about floating in between people floating in between sort of uh, living in the present, but floating between their memories on the one hand and their now kind of suspended hopes for the future on the other. And by I then, give you, Karen, like, let me give you this quote right here. Cause it's quite, it's quite moving actually. They yeah. said at such moments, the collapse of their courage, willpower and endurance was so abrupt that they felt they could never drag themselves out of the pit of despondency into which they had fallen. Therefore, they forced themselves never to think about the problematic day of escape, to cease looking to the future, and always to keep, so to speak, their eyes fixed on the ground at their feet. Thus, in a middle course between these heights and depth, they drifted through life rather than lived, the prey of aimless days and sterile memories like wandering shadows that could have acquired substance only by consenting to root themselves in the solid earth of their distress. Exactly. That was the part, that last bit was the part I wanted to talk about. This kind of this appeal to enrooting ourselves in the solid earth of human distress, of feeling those feelings, of not shutting them out and saying, oh, well, that's too difficult. I don't want to, I'll think about that tomorrow. Um, I, or I'll just kind of keep my head down and keep, uh, 
motoring along as if everything were more or less normal when nothing is normal. And I think that that's where this kind of idea of the plague as an allegory for world crisis on any kind of, whether it's global warming, whether it's, you know, the the rise of, uh, of bigotry and nationalism throughout the world, that this idea that when faced with catastrophe, uh, it's, a, it's an unproductive response just to put one's head down and keep going. And it might be a more productive response, even if we're not ascribing value judgments to our responses, as, as Liu declines to do, it's a more productive response maybe to take a full measure of the kind of the kind of human suffering that's at stake in these catastrophes. And that's what Camus is kind of urging us, I think, to do uh, in writing this book and in having all of these characters, some of whom die of the plague, some of whom don't, some of whom kind of get what they want, some of whom don't, one of whom goes crazy, um, you know, presenting all these different faces of what it's like to be uh, living in the plague, living in and living in the face of a catastrophe, a crisis, uh, it is so effective because I think we can find ourselves or we can find our common humanity in these different facets of the of the people of Oran in this book. And what's interesting, what he's, I think what he may be suggesting is that we shouldn't just think about how difficult things are, how awful things are, but actually to focus on the very variegated responses of other people is sort of where the book will ultimately end up. If there's any lesson, he says, this is what that men are so, human beings are so different and complicated. And there's a certain kind of um, surprise in that. Actually, the book also, which I think is quite nice, it keeps, while it's this terrifying ordeal to be through the plague, there's new things happening. And at the same time, nothing will ever change because the cities under lockdown, everybody's in the same condition, everybody's just terrified. But the yeah. narrator yeah. keeps on discovering new things, which means yeah. humanity keeps on presenting new things to us, even if the plague has this mindless, um, this kind of stubborn way of just killing people. There's nothing new in it, actually. Just the virus plays itself out every single time the same way. But yeah. the suffering is distinct every single time. Yeah. No, and, and again, there are these moments of, of just, as you say, surprise and in you know in the hands of a of a lesser writer or a lesser artist so many of these characters could become kind of stereotypical stock cartoon representations of oh there's the man of action the political man tahu who at a certain point uh reveals that he's spent his whole life because his father was was a judge or a lawyer or something and he one day when he was a child saw somebody condemned to death and he spent the rest of his life fighting the death penalty. And there's a place where he talks about he for a while he joined political movements that told him that some deaths were justifiable if it meant they were creating a better world for everyone. And I think that was kind of a dig at, you know, at French communists like Sartre and Beauvoir, who would right. say, oh, well, a few Stalinist death, death camps, we can't worry about those when, you know, Russia is creating a better world for mankind and for the future. And so we get Tahu, right. who's kind of man of action in many ways. Uh, but there's that incredible moment after the death of the child when uh, Tahu and Ryu run into the boy's father. And the boy's father wasn't present at, the, at his son's death because he, he, the father, was in an isolation camp for people who were had been, you know, infected, potentially infected or exposed. Uh, and, and the, this man, the bereaved father says to them, 
well, at least my boy didn't suffer very much. And Tahu, this kind of principled action man says, no, he didn't really suffer at all. He lies. And it's just this little moment, but it shows incredible human decency and empathy. And Ryu doesn't even comment on it. You know, it just, it's a little indication. And we're surprised by that. pleasantly surprised. And I think one of the things that also makes this, this book slightly hopeful and inspiring reading, even in the dark times of COVID-19, is the fact that Ryu insists repeatedly throughout his narrative, just in little moments here and there, but several times, that people on balance are more, are more good than they are bad. Um, I, you know, that I we think surprised this, positively by them. I think it's really nice, actually, this little tiny, it's a, it's a half a sentence you just pulled out, where Taru lies to the father who says he didn't, and we just, as a reader, were witness to this excruciating scene of the boy really suffering. For but several now we, <laughs> it, And now we as readers are kind of brought into complicity and say, at some moments, all your principles, and Taru, as you said, is moved by seeing an, or hearing about an execution as a boy to have a really principled life. He's politically engaged. He said, I've had a hand in the struggles against the death penalty in many European nations, but that's not for me to talk about right now. So he's kind of a really political person yeah. in the yeah. best sense of the French sort of post-war tradition. And there he lies to actually comfort somebody as, yeah. as he, who cannot be, cannot be comforted, really. And in some yeah. ways, we as readers are now brought in and say, if you know about suffering, you will also know about humanity. So this kind of brutal honesty is not what's needed at this time, but actually some kind of sens- sensitivity. And, but it breaks with this idea that there's a political solution to all of this. That's correct. That we, we know the answer. I wanted to ask you about another quote, which is quite interesting. It's when Taru, Taru ultimately succumbs to the plague and then after that, he uh, Ryu thinks about him and he says, um, he's asking himself, what, what had he, Ryu, won? No more than the experience of having known plague and remembering it, having known friendship and remembering it, of having known, known affection and being destined one day to remember it. So all a man could win in the conflict between plague and life was knowledge and memories. Yeah. And in some ways, the book seems to be that to say, Actually, for us to live a life that's meaningful, we have to, first of all, pay attention to our own lives and actually commit it to memory and not just live through it, suffer it, and sort of be overwhelmed by it. So this, the whole book is this effort that Camus was so committed to saying knowledge and memories rather than idealism and political beliefs are what makes people human. That's right. And that, that writing, that literature can be a, a, a repository for memory and knowledge, in fact. And it, it's significant, you know, we talk about this as a novel, and it is a novel, but um, but it's not labeled a novel anywhere, you know, even on its title page. And it's it's described by the narrator himself as a chronicle. So it's it's a text that is kind of, it's a fictional text that's presenting itself as uh, a, a chronicle of real events. And, and the narrator tells us in the beginning that he has written this story on the basis of his own observations and also different documents that he received from other people. Tahu keeps a diary throughout the plague. And after Tahu dies, Ryu presumably gets hold of those, um, those notebooks and uses them. And so the, the narrator kind of is showing us throughout, I'm, I'm building a story. I'm taking what available knowledge and what available memory I have at my disposal 
to create something that will, uh, as he says in the final pages of the book, that will at least pay some kind of homage in particular to the victims. And he describes his text in the, in the final passages of the book as a kind of a memorial or a monument to the people who died. And without saying somehow like Pan Lu, oh, well, you know, those people who died, God wanted it that way, so it justifies their death. Uh, Ryu never says, okay, the fact that they died somehow, you know, it was all worthwhile because it pr produced this text that, I'm, that, I'm, uh, that I've written here. Uh, but what he is saying is, at least it's something that writing, testifying to what has happened to these people, uh, marshalling knowledge and memory in a way that can move others, in a way that can deepen our understanding of what it is to be human and to face this kind of disaster, that at least that's something one can do. And that's where we rejoin the sort of typical existentialist line of, you know, life is absurd, life is horrible suffering, there is no God, but it's up to each of us to make meaning where and how we can. And for Rieu, he makes meaning in his work by tending to sick people every day, and he makes meaning by, by crafting a, a narrative about the plague. But this is interesting what you're saying, to make meaning um, in this concrete way. He's a doctor, he can help, but Taru is not a doctor, he just helps in this kind of neighborhood brigade. And then to make meaning also by remembering those who died, and then he's, and to not give in to the temptation to assign blame or to find a deeper logic and say, this is the, this is the payback for... Um, whatever kind of sins humanity has committed of ravaging the planet or globalization or whatever it is or not being careful or something like that which is always a kind of metaphysical explanation so creating meaning in the plague for you means two things to be committed to other people and to acknowledge other people's suffering and not yeah. to look away and and in some ways again we're back to where Camus and Sartre really part ways in this really unpleasant way they have a huge falling out it's very upsetting and probably traumatic for Camus where Sartre says now politics ultimately will take precedent and yeah. and, and I'm, I'm, I'm obviously summarizing and kind of making a caricature to Sartre and Camus says no actually politics are not what we should focus on always although he was very politically engaged yeah. in the war more so well, than Sartre and Beauvoir uh, yeah but he says ultimately we have to acknowledge that humans matter more than history. Yeah. And, it, and this is kind of where the, the, this, this book ends up saying, in a time of pestilence, he says, that there are more things to admire in men than to despise. It doesn't mean it's a rosy view of humanity, people behave terribly, but he says, if we lose sight of that by looking for a larger meaning, we actually have given in to what this thing can produce in us. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of readers of, of Camus and maybe some people listening to your podcast know Camus as the author of The Stranger, this, you know, novel right. of a very isolated man in revolt against society. And in the, the letter to the literary critic uh, Roland Barthes that I mentioned earlier, where Camus did insist that, that people acknowledge the, the sort of, the, the, to him in 1947, obvious parallel between this locked down city and occupied France, he also said, you know, this book for me marks a turn or a shift from the individual in revolt to a meditation on the need for collective action. The idea that, you know, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. And Rieu, uh, by dint of being a doctor, 
again, is such a, such a sort of, um, astutely chosen figure for a narrator because he is engaged in the, in the plague, uh, in the most active way anyone could be in that scenario. But it's also Rieux as this narrator, as a chronicler, as somebody who's noticing or who's culling from documents where other people have noticed the specificity of different human behavior and different human tragedies and moments of quiet heroism. Uh, and it's in doing that, that, um, that he sort of attaches to a, to a larger community. He repeatedly, the narrator repeatedly uses the, the pronoun us, we, we citizens of Oran, the plague, all of us were in it. Um, and so I think that the, the shift for people who've only, who only know Camus, the author of The Stranger, the shift from that novel to this one is a very, very striking one. Um, right. And, and I, to, to my mind, it represents real sort of um, artistic as well as you know, ethical evolution on the part of Camus as a writer, that, um, that he's moved from just presenting one man who sees that everything is absurd and society expects him to be hypocritical and false and accept all of these kind of false gods as if they were real or at least pretend to, uh, to suddenly showing a kind of a, a city where everyone is in something together. And the main character, the lens through which we see uh, the whole uh, unfolding series of horrors is somebody who feels and repeatedly says that he is profoundly connected to everyone else. He says, I'm no different from anybody else in the plague. This was all of our plague. This was all of our disaster. And it's, there's a moment when he's, he's taking somebody, a patient or something, and I think a woman is, is sort of imploring him, say, don't take my husband or a relative out of the house to the hospital because he knows he's just going to die there. He's not going to come back. And then I think she says something like, don't you have a heart? Have you no heart? And he says, of course he had a heart. His heart was actually to help people and to remember their stories. And those yeah. two things together. So it's not a sentimentalizing of suffering and saying, oh, people are different and we have to acknowledge all of them. Yeah. But say, there's a purpose to that. Yeah. And he even acknowledges her in a way. She says, do you have a heart? He says, I have a heart. My heart is actually that I'm here doing this right. to, the, to the best of my ability. That the stranger is this text that people, a lot of people read in high school. And it was a kind of... Um, sort of fable for adolescent angst of... Like know, catch the rye, yeah. Yes, exactly. I'm on my own. <laughs> Society is hypocritical. Um, to obey the rules is probably a moral failure, and I'm just going to chart my own path here and do my own thing. And even at, in, the, in spite of committing a crime and facing the death penalty, I will not bow to you, sort of the expectations of society. So yeah. this book... That society doesn't have expectations, really, because society itself is kind of denying this existential threat. That once the plague is here, this is why the metaphor works for him so well, I think, that all of society is gripped by it. Yeah. Um, in The Stranger, there's sort of society against the individual. Here, it's, yours never, as you said, he writes, he always says us, he's never apart from anybody. He says, I'm as much in it as everybody else is in it. Yeah, yeah. No, and so there is this feeling, I think, of connectedness, which I think, again, is also part of what produces the sort of the some of the 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 terror and the anxiety with which we read this book. He does such an effective job of plunging us into this world in lockdown. And for me, at least, the kind of the identification with and the sort of transporting of myself as a reader into this fictional world, it happens a lot more powerfully for me in this book than it ever 
you know, than it ever could or did when, when reading, when I was reading or rereading The Stranger. Right. Right. You know, could you say something? I, I, I'm kind of interested in terms of reading in general, you, the experience. So once you finish the book, I mean, the, the, the plague ultimately leaves the town of Oran and then it gets reopened and, and people can move about again. And there are these very interesting and moving scenes of what people do right away. And I actually felt reading it, I was really glad to reach that point because I did want to see there's a future. I did want to see the point yeah. where all this is going to be lifted, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, but as you say, it's not, it's, you know, even there, uh, as much kind of cause for provisional hope or kind of some sort of uplifting feeling of humanity that one, one can get in reading this story because there is this moment afterward when when um, people finally, the plague is gone and everyone can can... And most importantly, I think he says, you know, can reconnect with the people they loved that they were separated from during the plague. And in this, in this, in our current uh, era of social distancing, I think that really resonates this idea that, you know, this disease, this catastrophe separates people even from the people they would like to be around, they want to be around. And so on the one hand, you do have this kind of uplifting moment at the end, and we get a, a few, I would say, you know, 10 to 20 pages about the sort of joy and relief in the town that celebrates once it's finally clear that the plague has has subsided and that the the serum or the vaccine they've developed for it is actually working in the most of the cases that are now petering out but um one thing that Camus says twice I think again because this is somebody who lived through the German occupation who saw the the absolute unimaginable horrors of World War II this isn't somebody who's going to prevent a, present a totally rosy uh, view of, of the human condition. And he says in two different places uh, towards the end um, that this is joy that people are feeling and they would, they would feel it for at least a little while. He doesn't promise that now people are permanently transformed by their experience of suffering. And to me, that reminded me so much of, um, of living in New York City, as you and I both did. And you've written and thought a, a lot about this, about the sort of effect of 9-11 on New York City. And I remember, you know, that for a while in New York, my strongest memory of New York after 9-11, like you, I lived downtown and saw the towers fall. And uh, for me, the, the thing that was really striking for the first few months after 9-11 was that New Yorkers were nicer to each other. We were in a little bit less of a hurry. We were a little bit less inclined to flip each other right. off and you know, if somebody is, you know, almost runs you over in a crosswalk, hey, screw you, you know, that, went away for a while and there was a kind of um, a felt feeling and an awareness that there was real real suffering that people had lived through and you know those of us who didn't at least speaking for myself someone who didn't lose anybody that I dearly loved in the fall of the Twin Towers but seeing the posters of the you know the faces of the people who had gone missing um, in that attack uh, it made me more sensitive for a while to the idea that the people standing next to me on the crosswalk or pushing in front of me in line at the deli might be walking a very hard road. And yet that kind of awareness, at least again, speaking for me, wasn't permanent. Um, I'm now right. back to being somewhat more <laughs> impatient and less right. uh, automatically kind of humane and compassionate than I was after 9-11. And so I like the way that Camus tempers the optimism too, saying in two different places. And again, I only had the, the French edition to read um, here in my self-quarantine, so I, I won't read the quotes, but he says in two different cases, you know, this joy they felt 
at least they would feel it for a little while. It's interesting. I think you're right. At the end of the book, you feel, okay, this lasts for a moment, and then people kind of go back. And actually, it's um, it's funny. Kotar is the one who says, really, could it be like this, that the plague was going to leave no traces in people's hearts? And he's the yeah. one who is the criminal who is committed, tried to commit suicide. He's the one who actually questions this. The other part, I actually thought as well that what the book gave me a little bit of saying, there's maybe a moment in the crisis already to respond a bit more thoughtfully because Rieu commits to every night after his double shift and being in the hospital, he goes and writes this chronicle. I'm not going to write a chronicle, but he actually sort of takes the time to take stock of who he has just seen. And he sees very sick people, people dying all the time. So in some ways, I think part of what the book can do is the book is not the book to read and say, oh, how can I make sense of this crisis? But rather, this book immerses you in another crisis and allows you to see one way to respond is actually to commit to it right now and not to think, oh, I'm going to find a way to be sort of to manage it. You're in the middle of a historical uh, pandemic. It's different from 9-11 because it's happening all over the world and it's yeah. happening, it's unfolding. 9-11 was terrible and traumatic in New York City, but it happened and it was over in two hours, except for the people who lost people, of course, and many people who were first responders who are still sick, etc. But what the book, the, the plague does, I feel, it gives you a sense, oh, actually, maybe this is the moment to actually start already responding and to be a bit yeah. more sensitive. There are already many people who've lost someone. So maybe it isn't the moment to just go off on what's wrong with the Senate or what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that politician or what's wrong with this funding or what's wrong with, I can't get that. But there are other people who are already so far in it that this is what Rieu seems to balance out. He says, I want to do something. I want to help people at the same time. I already want to acknowledge where they are. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And again, I think it's, it goes back to what we were saying before about, you know, what, what can, what can literature do? And I think that, Camus, even in the, his statement about how, you know, he moved from the stranger to the plague, from a kind of a model of individual re uh, revolt to an, you know, a meditation on, on collective suffering, collective involvement, you know, the, the idea that we're part of a community, even when we're socially distanced. You know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the fact that I'm self-quarantining because I have no business being out in the world and infecting other people. Um, so I think that, yeah, at its, at its best, one tiny shred of a silver lining to, um, to something like COVID-19, as for the plague in, in Camus' novel, is what can, yeah, what, what stock can we take now while we're in it that, um, that make us, if not make us slightly better people, at least pay attention to or cultivate the best parts of ourselves Camus, I, um, I found while I was uh, sort of reading around before you and I spoke, I found Camus' Nobel Prize acceptance speech. And um, there was this part that I really loved that I have in English I wanted to read to you, and, and you probably already know it, but this gets back again to what sort of he explicitly here states as the job of, of the writer. Um, we, the writers of the 20th century, will never be alone again. On the contrary, we must know that we cannot escape the common misery and that our only justification, if there is one, is that we, to the extent that we are capable of doing so, speak for those who cannot. 
Uh, and I think that, you know, by that measure, by his own measure, and I forget, did he win the Nobel Prize in 1950, 51, something like that? I don't know. Early, um, maybe even a little later, maybe 57. I don't know. I'll look it up. <laughs> okay. Anyway, yeah, that's, yeah, at least the internet is still working. Um, but yeah, but I mean, I think by that, by that measure, the, the plague succeeds as a novel, you know, the, that he succeeds in speaking for all of these people, even though they're fictional, who, um, who undergo each in their own distinct, painful, and sometimes somewhat redeeming way, uh, a terrible disaster. But it's really nice, Carrie, to end on this, because maybe this is a way what people can take away from this to say, within your means, and all of us are differently situated, speak for those who don't have the same access for speaking. And speaking can take many different forms. It doesn't mean writing a book. But yeah. actually to think about those who have other concerns and other issues and maybe at this moment sort of dig into yourself and find the Rieu or Taru or Rambert inside of you who is going to help, although they have no business helping anybody else. They have their own concerns, their own lives, their own loves, and they still say, this is maybe my moment to do something for others. Yeah. It's it's quite it's quite a nice quote, the Nobel Prize. I think that's really moving, actually, this is to speak for others. But I think he meant not just speak, but actually do something. But act. Yeah. And I, again, I think that that's the real significance of having Rieu not be just the writer figure. In fact, uh, one of the funnier figures in the novel who just makes me laugh every time, and I reread many of the scenes with a sort of... Uh, glee um, and delight uh, at the sort of satire, one of the most ridiculous figures in the plague is this poor man uh, who's a civil servant uh, called Joseph Gall, yeah. uh, you know, great or big, who's manifestly not great. He's described by the narrator as, and by Tahu as possibly the most heroic person in Oran at the time because he's a man of kind of limited capabilities limited sophistication and world experience and yet he devotes himself during the day to trying to help the sick however he can but then at night he goes home and in his heart of hearts he's a writer and he's writing this novel where he only ever makes it to the, the end of the first sentence and when he's almost dying of the plague toward the end of the the book he hands uh, Rieu his precious manuscript and you see that it's just 50 pages of iterations of the opening sentence which is a very kind of it's a parody of like a late 19th century French society novel. One beautiful day in May, a, uh, you know, an elegant woman was riding on horseback on her superb chestnut mare in the Bois de Boulogne, which is like the kind of, was the fashionable part to ride your, of Paris to ride your horses in at the end of the 19th century. <laughs> it's this absurd thing to be thinking about while your entire city is in lockdown and people are dying everywhere of the plague. And so I think you, you really raise a good point that, um, that the imperative that Camus uh, sort of issues through Rieu and in the Nobel Prize acceptance speech isn't necessarily in a narrow sense of the term to write, to speak for those who cannot, to be a writer, because a writer can be ridiculously cut off from other right. people's concerns, but it's to, to kind of place your awareness on and do what you can to help with the, the suffering that other people are undergoing because of, of what's going on. It's a funny scene when Grand keeps on writing the sentence and then when, <laughs> when, when Rieu pulls out and he says, oh my God, it's 50 pages. It made me think of Jack Nicholson in The Shining. 
when, my God, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy over and exactly over. Exactly. When he, they're isolated in a house, they're basically in quarantine, snowed in and wherever yeah. they are in this big hotel, the Overlook Hotel. And then he keeps on writing the same sentence as a failed writer. And it's a yeah. story of a failed writer who goes a bit insane on his family. Um, so actually it's interesting that Stephen King, who surely has read Camus, borrowed that little moment or anecdote from that book. <laughs> oh, that's so great. I never thought about that, about that intertext, but I, I think you're exactly right. And, and yet with Gaul, the difference with Gaul, there is a, and I want to maybe not utter a spoiler for anybody who's listening to this podcast who hasn't yet read The Plague, but there is a man in this book who goes crazy at the end and like tries yeah. to kill some people like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, but that man is not Gaul, is not the failed writer. That's right. Failed writer, even the failed writer, and this is what gives me hope, Uli, as a writer who <laughs> is not entirely failed but not entirely successful either. Um, what gives me hope is this idea that even a writer whose kind of intellectual or artistic concerns would seem to be worlds away from the plague, from pestilence, yes. from bird, yes. collective, you know, citywide or worldwide suffering, that even a person like that can actually reconnect to a sort of a larger swath of humanity and, and take action that can be helpful in some modest way. It's, it's, and Camus does not make fun of him. This is very, no. he does not, he does not belittle this effort at all. He says, all we try to do is write our little sentence here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although there is that moment. I mean, this is again where you and I have talked about this before, I think in other contexts, and we learned in graduate school that irony is the one rhetorical device of which there are no traces on the page. It's yeah. all in tone. It's all in <laughs> how you read it. And so there is that moment where Rieu, in his very kind of dry, detached, matter-of-fact narrative, quotes Grand as saying, in the end, I decided to suppress all the adjectives. <laughs> and like, that was his radical transformation. So where he had hesitated endlessly between, should I call her elegant or sumptuous? And are the, are the avenues of the Bois de Boulogne flowered or filled with flowers? This is a man who's been like, kind of tearing his hair out over these stupid little uh, word choice decisions. And I, again, laugh with some empathy at that because I spend my life tearing my hair out over stupid little word right. choice decisions. Right. Um, but yet the idea that his big kind of aha moment is, I'll suppress all the adjectives. I have to feel like maybe Rieu is making a little bit of, there is a little bit of irony there. That's There's a little bit of, it's gentle comedy at very least. He's yeah. certainly not turning him into a totally ridiculous figure, but it's a moment where I think we might be authorized to see uh, that Rieu is, um, knows that the sentence he's quoting is a little bit, uh, a little bit silly. Carrie, is there anything else you're reading right now while you're in self-quarantine that's not Camus and plague narratives? Yeah, well, um, yes and no. So I am reading another plague narrative uh, that um, by uh, a Portuguese writer and another Nobel Prize winner, um, Jose Saramago. Yes. This called Blindness. Have you read it? No, but everybody is telling me to read it, and I thought, okay, I have it somewhere, so I'll, I don't, I, I'll have to see. I'll have to pace myself with the plague narratives. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. I was thinking about about picking up the Decameron again, but the but blindness is is kind of amazing in a weird way. It's almost more terrifying than um, than Camus' novel, partly because it feels more contemporary. Because Saramago, you know, died I think in the early two thousands, and I forget when Blindness came out. But he describes a city where um, people are suddenly are, are suddenly struck blind, and wow. it's highly contagious. And it opens with this horrifying scene of a man 
who just it, drives through a traffic light at, in an intersection and is screaming behind the wheel of his car, I've gone blind, I've gone blind. And, and within the first like 50 pages, everybody who comes into any kind of even indirect contact with that man goes blind. Yeah. And, um, and it's, it's really kind of amazing. It's, I would say it's, it's much more terrifying than the plague. And since I haven't finished it yet, I don't know how I'll feel about it overall, but it's certainly gripping reading. And then I'm also, I'm, I'm rereading for the first time since College War and Peace, which I love, and which is great escapist fiction. Um, oh, you and good. I have a podcast yeah. on that day when you're up for it, because um, it's so much better than I remembered. Oh, really? That's nice yeah. to hear. Okay. Yeah, so that's worth funnier. it much funnier than I remembered, which is helpful in these times. How about you? What are you reading besides uh, Camus? I'm reading a memoir of a Japanese-American family called The Grave on the Wall, which someone oh. gave me. So it's basically um, somebody who was brought over to Hawaii and then sort of in this kind of Japanese-American saga. It's like a three... But it's a very strange book with photographs and real memories and fiction combined. I don't know. It's, hmm. it's it takes me into a very different place. So when I didn't do Camus, I did that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's good. We need to we need to counterbalance our our pestilence readings with and our you know human suffering and tragedy readings with um with at least some other things that are absorbing and can can take our mind in different directions. I mean, even Ryu frankly says that that there are these moments when even Ryu, the tireless fighter right. of these says you know that even he needs a distraction. There's that beautiful scene in the plague where he and Tahu go for a swim in the ocean and the swimming has been forbidden because it they're worried about contagion but they these guys kind of leave the city and go to some remote place and for a while they float in the sea right. and they both say afterward you know it's or they say beforehand even people who even saints because tahu is obsessed with what would it take to be a saint in a world without god you know how can one be in the service of of goodness and you know and in, in the service of others even in the absence of God, and Tahu acknowledges even a even a saint would probably acknowledge that it's okay for us to go swimming right now. So I think <laughs> the idea of finding a distraction, uh, at least from time to time, is good for our sanity, if if nothing else. Absolutely, yeah. It'll it'll be a while for people in New York before yeah, they go swimming. So. Unfortunately, so thank you so much for making time and for rereading Tommy with me. Thank um, you. I and it was even more fun than when we read it in grad school because it, there is so much more kind of urgent and pressing reason to be thinking about it now. So thank you for uh, for inviting me to do this with you. I loved it. Oh, a pleasure. Totally. So, and then um, I'll, I'll put one piece on my agenda here. And when I have done that, I'll call you back. Okay. <laughs> Please, or maybe before then. All right. Big kiss. Thanks, Lily. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Bye.